0: Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on
1: Air. Tonight, the latest developments in bariatric surgery options. In my opinion, the bigger you are, the higher your BMI, and the longer you have a diabetes, the better off you are with a bypass.
0: Plus, we'll talk about recent events that have made headlines the strange phenomenon of mass hysteria in children.
2: Difficulty seeing, difficulty hearing, difficulty breathing, numbness in an extremity, difficulty walking. Uh, or even uh, the apparent seizures.
0: And an important conversation about planning for end-of-life care.
3: If you don't have a plan for how you want your end-of-life plan to work out, you'll be left to the the vagaries of of other folks. It points out the importance of designating a health care proxy.
0: We'll get some expert advice and hear from our healing news. That's all coming up
3: right after the news.
0: Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers, from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, it's as old as the Salem witch trials. So what is this strange phenomenon called mass hysteria in children? Plus, the importance of planning ahead for end-of-life care. But first, an update on bariatric surgery options. About one-third of adults and about 17% of children and adolescents are obese in this country, and the numbers are growing at epidemic proportions, leading to serious health consequences. Now, while regular exercise and a healthy diet are always the best ways to lose weight, many people have tried and failed at these methods for years, and for some of those, bariatric surgery may be an option. Joining us to help us understand more about this option is Dr. Howard Simon, Professor of Surgery, the Division Chief of Bariatric, surgery and the director of the Central New York Bariatric Surgery Center at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Simon. Thanks for coming in. So you've been doing this kind of surgery for many years. Tell us about that.
1: Well, it's interesting. Gastric bypasses have been done since the 70s, and I actually did some of them when I was a resident in the early 80s. The form that it takes now, which is mostly laparoscopic approaches, um, has been done for about 15, 16 years. I've been doing it for about 13 or 14 years.
0: On average, how many people would you see in, a, in an average year these days?
1: Um, our program does uh, somewhere between 400 and a little over 500 cases a year.
0: And you're doing, it's really kind of a comprehensive thing. It's not just coming in for the surgery. There's really kind of a comprehensive program. Tell it, us about that.
1: Bar, bariatric surgery for the morbidly obese is a very infrastructure-heavy uh, program. It's not like when somebody comes in with a hernia and you and you fix it up. The patients are complicated. They have, in many cases, lots of comorbidities or diseases associated with it. Um, the operations themselves will not work without the appropriate behavioral changes. So we we have twenty people that work in our office, including dietitians, and psychologists, and uh, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants, and then the surgeons, of course, to get the people through the process uh, effectively and safely.
0: So let's start with just understanding who these people are. To start with, For, first of all, who who you mentioned the word morbidly obese. So what does that mean, actually?
1: Well, you know, as you said, over two thirds of the country is 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 uh, at least overweight, and uh, a third is is obese. Morbid obesity um, is a larger degree of this. Although, there's probably a discontinuity. There's a difference between somebody who's overweight or a little bit obese and somebody who's morbidly obese. We define it as somebody with a body mass index, which means your height and weight combined, of over 40. Or, and this I think is really important, or somebody with a slightly lower BMI, perhaps 35 to 39, with type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, or hypertension. That's the NIH definition. That's the definition that most insurance companies use as well.
0: So, who are these patients? I mean, what are their ages? Is there any? Is it gender related? I mean, what are you seeing?
1: Well, I, I think that obesity um, occurs equally in both genders. Uh, it's true that more women than men have the operation. That probably says something about our society, not not the, the distribution. Uh, the youngest person I've operated on is 17, and the oldest is 74.
0: So it's quite wide-ranging in terms of who they are. And, and you also, <clears throat> basically, a lot of them have these comorbidities or other problems like diabetes or hypertension or other things as well.
1: I think the best way to think of morbid obesity is a systemic disease that affects every physiologic system. Clearly, your vascular system through diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, but it affects your lungs. Asthma is worse when you are overweight, your mm-hmm. GI tract. Fatty liver, which many people have who are obese or morbidly obese, is going to become the most common cause for liver transplant for cirrhosis in the next five years. Oh my God. Most of us think that alcohol is number one. It is right now. Hepatitis used to be the second most common cause, and now fatty liver in obese patients has taken over as a very, very common cause of people with liver failure.
0: Are there other considerations that you have to have before you will even consider surgery on a patient? In other words, have they had to have shown some behavioral attempts at weight loss, that kind of thing?
1: We, when we see patients, um, we get a very careful dietary history. I do it, and we have dietitians that do it as well. So we want to document the people have tried to lose weight. And that, that's the case of the overwhelming majority of them. They've tried. Of course, the most perverse thing about morbid obesity is these patients can lose weight. They can lose lots of weight. The problem is, is that 98% of them gain it back. And the really tough thing for them is most of them gain back more weight than they lost in the first place. So it's a disease. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we'll see occasional patients who've never tried to lose weight, we'll watch them for at least six months to demonstrate that they, you know, are capable of making changes that would help them to lose weight.
0: Well, why is that so important? Does it affect the outcome post-surgically?
1: The, uh, the operation is necessary but not sufficient. The, without the behavioral changes, the operations just don't work. If I offered somebody $10,000 who was going to get a gastric bypass, and I'll give you $10,000 at the end of the year if you don't lose a lot of weight, they would collect. You have to change your habits. If you do, you will be successful.
0: And isn't it also true, I read somewhere, that some people even post-surgically can still gain the weight because they become kind of nibblers or grazers, and they may eat constantly. They may not eat in large amounts, but they may continue to take in large quantities of food over the course of a day.
1: Morbid obesity is a disease. And like all diseases, diseases can have relapses. You don't cure morbid obesity, you put people in remission. And I think the most important thing that we try to let the patients know is, if they've gained weight, some weight back after a few years, don't be embarrassed to come back. You wouldn't be embarrassed if you had cancer and it came back to see your doctor. We can get people back on track, but only if we, we only if we see them. We use behavior modifications. We sometimes can have counselors see them. We um, can try to get a better exercise prescription for them. And now we're even starting to use some of the weight loss drugs uh, that people use for obesity. And we don't know the role yet of this, but it may be useful to use some of these drugs in struggling patients postoperatively a few years after.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm Linda Cohen here with bariatric surgeon Dr. Howard Simon. We're talking about bariatric surgery for weight loss. So what are some of the steps patients must take before they actually get signed up for the surgery? I mean, they have to get a psychological evaluation. What are the kinds of things? You well, the first
1: thing we do is we have information sessions uh, three times a month. And at that session, I talk to them for about 45 minutes, let them ask questions about the whole disease of morbid obesity, the process, and we go through that in detail. Once they've done that, they call, when they have their information filled out, we see them in the office. At the first visit, they see the surgeon, the dietitian, and we have a checklist of things that need to be done. We have everyone get a psychological evaluation. We have people tested for sleep apnea, which is so common. Of course, if they if we they know they have, it, they need to be tested. We get stress tests on people we worry about coronary disease. In we have them attend at least one support group. We check certain laboratory measurements on them. We like people to lose some weight uh, preoperatively. It's interesting if you look at the data. There's no good data to show that weight loss pre-op predicts a better outcome, but we think it's important to lose some weight in the patients.
0: Almost to, in a sense, assess their motivational level.
1: Yes. I think that oversimplifies it, though. Um, what we find is you have to individualize it to the patient. Patients who are on insulin, for instance, have a very difficult time losing weight. Patients on some psychiatric medicines, for instance, for they have a tough time losing weight. So you have to really not say, we want you to lose 5%, and that's absolute. I don't do that. We, mo- most of the surgeons don't do that. We look at the patient, their motivations, and um, if we think they're doing the right things to be successful. we don't want to operate on someone who we don't think is going to be successful. And I think most people can be successful as long as they understand it's a combination of the operation and what they do with the operation afterward.
0: So t- let's go over the kinds of surgery you offer, because <clears throat> I know there have been some changes over the years. What I are mean, the different procedures?
1: Well, the 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 operation that um, has been done the longest and is the most thoroughly vetted is, is the gastric bypass, which is done laparoscopically now.
0: So that when, just for our listeners, when you say laparoscopically, basically it's not a huge open procedure where you're making <clears throat> a large incision in the abdomen. Basically you're doing it through almost like a little keyhole type thing?
1: We make five small incisions, and, and that reduces the postoperative pain and wound complications in a very, very dramatic manner. So in my opinion, the gastric bypass at least statistically, is still the best operation. Uh, people did bands for a while. I was never completely sold on the bands. And, and what
0: exactly, just help us understand, so with the gastric bypass, what actually is happening?
1: What we do is we um, divide the stomach, and people have a very small, we call it the pouch. That's where the food goes. It's the size of an egg.
0: But the rest of the stomach remains there. But we just- leave it
1: alone. It still produces some hormones and things. There's no reason to take it out. And then we bypass about 100 to 150 centimeters of bowel. That has a lot of effects. Um, You may not absorb all your calories for the first year, but that usually accommodates. It has incredible biochemical effects, particularly on type 2 diabetes.
0: We've seen a reversal. Some people have set up within a week of surgery, they see a reversal.
1: Right. So the question is, well, you haven't lost much weight in the first week, so how can a patient with a gastric bypass go home off their medicines? And the answer is... It's a type 2 diabetes is a disease of insulin resistance. And the setup, the anatomy after a bypass increases certain hormones that help use your insulin better. So a large proportion, maybe 20-25% of patients will go home off their medicines. Overall, about 80% Will reverse their diabetes over the first year, and the others will be better.
0: So, with gastric banding, which you're not doing anymore, um, what what did you do there? Did you literally put
1: a band around the, the stomach? We did. It was an, you could adjust the band. You could put fluid into to make it bigger. That was purely restrictive. There were, there were there were many problems with the band. Number one is that the weight loss wasn't as good, but that wasn't the biggest problem. The diabetes resolution wasn't nearly as good as a bypass. The biggest problem is is that the band is a mechanical device. Mechanical devices can fail. And if you look at long-term statistics, 50% of people who got bands have to have melt for either inadequate weight loss or for a complication of the band itself.
0: So largely it's not being done
1: anymore. Very few people are doing bands.
0: How about the sleeve gastrectomy? What is that?
1: The sleeve gastrectomy is an operation where you take out the side of the stomach and you leave the stomach. It's a long, narrow tube has resistance, it gives people a very good sense of satiety, of feeling full. And if you look at a lot of studies, it's close, not quite as good as the gastric bypass, on average. I mean I have patients with sleeves with a given BMI who lose more than patients with gastric bypasses. It's you know the patient's input is what's really the most important.
0: So how do you make the decision
1: as the surgeon? Well some people have a preconceived notion. I in my opinion, the bigger you are, the higher your BMI and the longer you have a diabetes, the better off you are with a bypass. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we do both. I think one of the problems with sleeve, not a problem, but uh, something that I notice and I've talked to other people about, the sleeve's easier to do technically. Uh, that really shouldn't come into play um, into what we do. Uh, we should pick the best operation for the patient.
0: So you really pick it based on a, it's a case by case basis. That's right.
1: We do about two thirds bypasses, one third sleeves.
0: Do we know how it works? And I don't want to run out of time. So help
1: me here. Do
0: do we um, do we know what actually makes this happen? The weight loss.
1: The we we we'll, we say it's restriction. We say it's meal absorption. We say it's chemical effects. To tell you the truth, we don't know all the reasons why it works. It probably has to do with resetting your set point. It's very complicated. There's loads of research being done. I think our understanding of how it works is not complete. But, in fact, it does work. It does work.
0: So you're also, into. I think you're adding some new things like integrative medicine in terms of helping patients postoperatively, helping them with stress reduction, mindful eating, that kind of thing.
1: I, I think that um, when I see this 15 to 20% rate of, of gaining weight back, I think we should be able to do better than that. And I think it requires more than just the operation, even just visits with the doctor. Um, Stress is a driver of obesity. We're going to have experts give talks about stress reduction. Sleep, people who don't sleep well are heavier. Um, Exercise is important, but you can't just say go exercise. We want to try to be more prescriptive about the exercise. And mindful eating, which means enjoying what you eat, thinking about it, is really important. And and most Americans do not eat mindfully. They eat, they don't even think about what they're doing.
0: Exactly. It's mindless eating for the most part. Yeah. Exactly. Well, listen, this is a very comprehensive program, and there's more to learn as time goes on, as more and more people go through this, and we learn more about it. But clearly, it's been very effective. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing all this with us. My guest has been Dr. Howard Simon, Chief of Bariatric Surgery and the Director of the Central New York Bariatric Surgery Center at Upstate Medical University. Next up, what medical schools can do to help inspire more students to embrace primary care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. The scene was 2012 in Leroy, a small town of 7,500 people in western New York, where the kids were wholesome and happy. At least that's how it appeared until 18 teenage girls developed a strange neurological syndrome of twitching and tics. Some attributed to an environmental hazard in the area, But the physicians consulted agreed that it was more likely a conversion disorder, a mass psychogenic illness. We'll hear with more on this is Dr. George Starr, Emeritus Clinical Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Starr, thanks for coming in.
2: Good morning and thank you.
0: This is a fascinating, fascinating case. I mean, reading about this, I was just riveted to this entire story. how this all happened and we're going to get into more of the details of that but first help me understand or help us understand and define what we mean when we use these terms conversion reaction conversion disorder or even hysteria in children what does it mean
2: usually means uh the presentation of what looks like a a real illness but it's based on psychological factors usually stress anxiety Some people consider it a form of body language with children who are unable to discuss their anxiety, and it comes out as difficulty walking, difficulty seeing, difficulty hearing.
0: So it's seen, it's something that is in the literature and in you and your own experience and practice. Have you seen these kinds of illnesses? I've
2: seen several cases that I've recognized uh, and uh, were able to help and, and resolve. Uh, Once we recognize them for what they were. And
0: it runs the gamut in terms of the kinds of ways it expresses itself.
2: Difficulty seeing, difficulty hearing, difficulty breathing, uh, numbness in an extremity, difficulty walking, uh, or even uh, the apparent seizures.
0: So these, but to the individual child, in this case, young, these were teenagers, but even in a child, these are real. I mean, the, the tics and vocalizations that were akin to like a Tourette syndrome in these in these young girls were real. They weren't. They weren't truly malingering.
2: They weren't faking. No, uh, and that's part of what makes this difficult to assess sometimes. But usually there are some things that, if you're thinking about it, will help you understand that this is not a true medical presentation. It's more of a psychological presentation. So
0: there are some things <clears throat> that the features. Of their symptoms that were not exactly in line with with what you would have thought of if it were truly a neurological disease
2: that's correct one of them is a a failure of response to medical treatment for that disorder and one of the girls in Leroy for example was on up to 11 medicines at one point without any uh, abatement in her symptoms
0: so that's almost a telltale sign. in It of itself. really
2: suggests that you need to be looking for something else. Yeah. So,
0: how is the diagnosis made? I mean, is it a diagnosis of exclusion? In other words, you have to run a certain amount of you have to run a certain amount of tests and figure out what it's not.
2: That's probably uh, a reasonable approach. Uh, although a lot of people recommend that if you recognize that these symptoms are not typical of, of the disease uh, as it normally presents that you think about a positive diagnosis, uh, consider this as a first-line diagnosis, but you also need to make sure that their other illness is not present. And so when I saw some of these kids, I would hospitalize them and ask for consultations by uh, gastroenterology, by neurology, uh, by ear, nose, and throat people, and also by psychiatry or psychology.
0: So you would attempt to rule out the more physiologically-based uh Causes that's correct, and in, in order to determine what actually and was also prove that
2: this was not uh, a true medical illness, but an anxiety based uh, illness. But in the
0: in the case of Leroy, this was happening on such a large scale basis that it strikes me that it's almost like a mass psychosis, in it, a sense, or a mass hysteria. Is that common, or it seemed very unusual to me the, the, as a person.
2: Uh, yeah, the duration that it went on was was somewhat uncommon. And that was possibly because a physician uh, out of the area somehow became involved and suggested a possible cause for all of this that really had no basis in fact but was believable by so the it fed children it kind and the of parents fed and fed into it and probably maintained it until other physicians became involved and began to help these uh, these children.
0: So do we really understand, though, what causes this? In other words, I mean, we it just seems... That it's not conscious on the part of a child, clearly, or even on the part of these teenagers. There's obviously some factors in their life that is causing stress, but all of us experience some levels of stress. Right. I mean, were there? Well, we can talk about Leroy in particular in a minute, but when you, in talking about some of the other cases you've seen, do we understand how this all gets going?
2: Sometimes uh, explanations are uh, are available. For example, I saw a boy who apparently suddenly lost uh, major hearing in one ear and had a parent who had had a, a tumor in the same ear many, several years earlier, uh, and uh, the concern was that this child had a similar tumor in his ear, uh, but on examination, he really did not have a hearing loss, even though the, he, uh, the school nurse thought he did, but uh, when he had a second audiological examination, his hearing was normal. Uh, Another girl lost sight in one eye, but turned out to have a cousin who was wearing a patch for uh, a true eye problem, a a crossed eye, and uh, so schoolgirl amblyopia is not uncommon. And will uh, the eye doctors will tell you that they sometimes have to put uh, some children into plain glass eyeglasses just to help them see better. Uh, they'll tell you they can't see, but you give them plain glass, not no correction at all, and all of a sudden they can see better once they're wearing these glasses. so in so. a sense, you're playing a game. Tr- Sometimes uh, you, you, uh, you will. It depends on the severity of the presentation.
0: But you, you, you had some theory about this altered psychological state that these individuals are in during this time that is not as uncommon as we tend to think it is. Tell us about that.
2: Uh, hysteria is a form of trance state of what we consider an altered state of consciousness, and although we think that's often a very exotic state achieved only with great difficulty by specially trained people, actually that's not so. Uh, it can be as everyday and mundane as driving down a familiar road and not remembering the last couple of miles that you drove because you were thinking of something something else. Uh, it's often thought that things that we can do well, we can do automatically. But it's the problems in our lives that occupy our minds and thoughts, and sometimes we'll end up In a concentrated focus on them, uh, with a disregard for what's going on around us,
0: and that's a trance. That's a trance state. But how does that become converted, perhaps, into some kind of a physiological or what appears to be a physiological state?
2: Uh, In that situation, uh, the thought is that somehow this problem, such as difficulty seeing, difficulty hearing, difficult, or uh, numbness in a hand, for example, serves. Another purpose, difficulty walking, forms, uh, gives you a reason for not being able to go on with your life in whatever way, possibly because uh, of stress that uh, makes you uh, uncomfortable with with what's going on.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with pediatrician Dr. George Starr, and we're talking about conversion reactions in children. So, why is the diagnosis so challenging?
2: Because the physicians are basically usually trained to uh, think of disease processes. And uh, for whatever reason, our training really does not address these issues very much. I became interested in it and studied it, and I try to give talks to pediatricians and doctors about this to raise the level of awareness.
0: Is there Um, also the notion of stigma attached to anything that's kind of mental? Mental.
2: Absolutely. Uh, And so one of the approaches to that is to think of this as a form of stress reaction uh, and to present that uh, in a way that's similar to, say, for example, migraines. Uh, And that makes it easier, I think, for parents and for patients to accept and understand this unusual uh, illness.
0: So let's get back to Leroy, because it's, to me, uh, you know, A recent case and obviously though we think of this as an ancient type of disease these kind of hysterical reactions i think of the salem witch trial with all those young girls claiming you know that they were fainting and being they were infected by spirits and this scene almost has that same feel because there were young teenage girls and it started with a few and then it seemed to have grown um what do you think actually happened there or what is the what is what does the data suggest?
2: The uh, the epidemiology suggests that uh, these were girls from, many of them from uh, broken homes, uh, fractured families. Uh, several of them were cheerleaders, and cheerleaders as a group have a history of uh, mim- mimicking uh, each other's uh, illnesses. Uh, oh, so really?
0: That, That's an interesting fact. Yeah.
2: And so that uh, many of the... Uh, Episodes of uh, what are considered mass hysteria or mass psychogenic illness, Uh, uh, there's often a history of uh, cheerleaders being involved. Really? But not always. (laughs) One of my favorite stories actually is about a lunchroom in Atlanta where uh, a middle school lunchroom where a 12-year-old girl was eating her lunch and then threw up and a lunchroom aide suggested that maybe it was the tuna fish sandwich, whereupon 60 more kids began throwing up oh immediately, goodness. many of them ending up in local hospitals, some of them staying overnight for IV hydration. This being Atlanta, the CDC became involved and checked everything out. There was nothing wrong with the tuna fish. This was all suggestion. That's fascinating, but that was a short... This is what, What's
0: interesting to me in this versus the Leroy story is that had a short-term... Outcome or a short-term resolution, Correct. but the Leroy story went on and on, and you had posited that perhaps there was something else feeding it.
2: As I uh, was mentioning before, a physician, a, new, a pediatric neurologist, uh, somewhere in New Jersey, somehow got involved with this, suggested a possible uh, autoimmune disorder uh, with a fancy name called PANDAS. Uh, it's, a, it's a neurologic disorder associated with strep infections. Uh, and the person who actually pr- originally proposed this uh, disorder, uh, Dr. Susan Suido at the uh, NIMH, uh, also got involved and looked at this and said these things, uh, this illness does not occur in clusters as it's being proposed. This does not make any sense.
0: But the fact was, <clears throat> you can understand why a lot of people were looking for other explanations, whether they were environmental hazards or the parent. I think most anything parents,
2: except the the stress and anxiety that was that was present.
0: I think it's hard a for form of denial. Yes, yeah. it would be very hard because of the stigma and everything else to assume that some of these very frank, what looked like neurological symptoms. I mean, it, I understood one girl was grunting and having almost like seizure like movements. Correct. could yeah. be psychologically driven i mean you can understand why that is a hard thing to accept
2: absolutely uh, and so everybody wants to look for a uh, a medical basis but there are often tip-offs if you're familiar with the normal presentation of some of these illnesses such as seizures uh, you can actually often discriminate between su- what we call pseudo seizures and true seizures
0: so what was the treatment that worked or what is the best treatment that's that's uh, agreed upon
2: another pediatric neurologist in buffalo became involved and offered these uh girls continued uh, medical testing which all came up normal offered them emotional counseling psychological counseling in, in, and in particular one called cognitive behavioral therapy which is a form of using your your intellectual mind your intelli- uh, intelligent mind your rational your mind <laughs> rational mind with your emotional feelings yeah uh and another thing that she did was to place this in the context of a stress reaction similar to the kinds of things that happen with a migraine headache and, and stress bringing on a migraine headache and this presentation was acceptable
0: so basically what what happened i mean what was the end of the story
2: End of the story is that the majority of the girls have cleared up and gotten better. Uh, I don't have any further follow-up in the last year, but to the best of my knowledge, it has been resolved.
0: So what's the takeaway then from this whole story and even in your experience as a pediatrician? Should we be aware of, obviously, the potential for these kinds of things and be able to address them appropriately? The take-home
2: is that when a child is indicating they're having a problem, we need to look at, whether this really looks like a true medical situation or whether it may have psychological overtones that are stress-related and try to discriminate between the two.
0: And perhaps a, a, a fight through that, in, that initial um, inertia with the stigma attached and, and go forward and, and deal with it What I found is that when I talk
2: with parents and, and call this a stress reaction rather than hysteria or a psychological issue, Uh, a stress reaction is much better understood and then we can move forward, deal with the stress, identify the anxiety, help the child with uh, their issues and hopefully bring them back to uh, uh, a a better state of, of health.
0: My guest has been Dr. George Starr, Emeritus Clinical Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Thanks so much for coming in with this very fascinating story. It really is a lot of pause for thought. And, and very enlightening for us.
2: Thank you for the invitation.
0: I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to HealthLink on Air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Anesthesiologist Colleen O'Leary explains how to prepare for a medical procedure that requires anesthesia.
4: Many people have to have a procedure, either an operation or a procedure where they're going to be sedated or have an anesthetic. Most often, a member of the anesthesia care team will talk with you in person or on the phone, and during this talk, the anesthesia team is going to want to discuss your past medical history, your past surgical history. Any medications that you may be taking, including herbal supplements and any over-the-counter medicines you take, any allergies you might have to medications, to latex, for example, to uh, foods, once all that information has been collected, it will be important to discuss with the person um, with whom you're talking what kinds of options might be available for you for the anesthetic. If you're going to have something like a colonoscopy or an upper endoscopy, most likely you'll be getting mild or deeper sedation. If you're going to have an operative procedure, there may be an opportunity for you to have either a general anesthetic or have part of your body numbed up. And sometimes people can have pain afterwards, and having part of your body numbed up can help with the postoperative pain management. It will be important for you to ask questions and to give this interview some thought prior to its occurring. The person that with whom you talk will also instruct you about when to stop taking things by mouth. Uh, they may let you have water and clear liquids up to a few hours beforehand, and they'll also guide you on what medications to take the
0: day of surgery. Up next, the importance of planning ahead for end of life care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, death is inevitable, but most people live in denial of this fact. So there remains a strong reluctance to prepare for this inevitability by letting your family and loved ones know your wishes around the end of life. Joining us with more on this and the importance of this kind of planning are Dr. Robert Olick, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Humanities and the Chair of the Ethics Committee at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Thomas Curran, Assistant Professor of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate Medical University and the Chair of the Ethics Consulting Service at Upstate and at Krause Hospital in Syracuse. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So planning for the end of life obviously is something that people try to avoid. What are the kinds of stumbling blocks or, or, or issues have you seen in this whole process?
3: Well, discussing your death is never a comfortable subject. Uh, people just assume not think about it frequently. Uh, however, uh, it does point out the importance of if you don't have a plan for how you want the, your end of life uh, plan to work out, you will be left to the the vagaries of of other folks considering what they would like to like to do in that situation. And it, it points out the importance of designating a healthcare proxy. And a healthcare proxy is probably one of the most important people you can have in your life because it's someone who you love and trust, to make decisions for you, not what they would do, but the, what you would want done. And uh, it is not a complicated process uh it's you don't need a lawyer you just need to designate someone these forms are available online in new york state forms available online you need two witnesses and you need to talk with this person about what you want to have done in the case that you lose decisional capacity and you have a a serious medical situation
0: and and it does it mean that you're always at the necessary at the necessarily at the end of life or can it mean that you just can't be mentally competent at that time to make decisions about your health care. The
3: healthcare proxy only comes into play when you have lost decisional capacity. And if you have decisional capacity, you call the shots. But as we all know, we none of us plan on losing decisional capacity. That's something that has sprung upon you uh, invariably. So
0: it's crucial, Dr. Olick, then to have this kind of planning. They tend to to lump a lot of these uh, concepts into a term called advanced directives. What is what are the components of this? Obviously, designating the healthcare proxy is key to starting the whole process. Right.
5: So, advanced directive is really sort of a generic term for several types of approaches one could take to planning ahead for healthcare decisions that would be made on your behalf and in accordance with your wishes but at a time when you're not able to make those decisions for yourself. So, Um, In New York, um, we have the healthcare proxy document, which, as Tom just said, um, is designed to allow you to designate uh, someone you trust uh, to make decisions for you when the time comes. Uh, There also is a living will, uh, which, by contrast, um, sets forth with more specificity. What your wishes would be in the future.
0: Give me some examples of what you find in a living will, though. I mean, do, do they do they help you along with what some of these decisions might be? For example, do you want to be um, on a feeding tube, or would you want to be sustained after you couldn't breathe by being put on a, some kind of a, a pump or a, a you know breathing pump?
5: Right, a living will could say any or all of those things. So there are two types of things you could say. One would be the types of Conditions, a quality of life that you would find unacceptable and not want to continue on life-sustaining interventions. Um, And that might be uh, emphasizing, for example, that uh, if you should uh, lose the capacity to interact meaningfully with your family, that um, you would not want to continue in that condition. Uh, Another approach would be to designate specific interventions that you wouldn't want, whether that would be a respirator or a feeding tube. Um, One of the downsides of that approach is that it can sort of lock you in to an anticipated future because these are all approaches to anticipating something that will happen in the future, which haven't happened yet.
0: How Um, do they lock you in?
5: um, Because then you're reading a document and um, both your family and your doctor need to figure out whether those instructions fit the circumstances that you're currently in. Uh, so
0: the point is that at at the point at which in real time you make that decision put pen to paper those circumstances could change at the time you really need the document is that what you're, see- that, that's you're
5: saying That's correct and and that's one of the reasons that many people recommend that you have a healthcare proxy because the proxy is in a position essentially to stand in the shoes of you as the patient and interact with the doctor and make decisions on your behalf in accordance with your wishes, um, responding to the current circumstances that you're in.
0: But That also implies to me that that proxy really has had long and um, in-depth conversations with you and knows you well enough to really be able to, in a sense, see the changing circumstances and react accordingly.
5: Yeah, that's a really good point. And we talk about choosing someone you trust, whether it's your spouse or an adult child or a friend or a religious advisor, and the law gives you broad discretion in terms of who you would choose. Um, But that's not always the same thing as having the conversation. Uh, So it it is important to have that conversation with the person you're choosing to make decisions for you so they know what your wishes would be.
0: So what is a durable power of attorney and how does that play a role in this whole advanced directive picture?
5: Well, sometimes a durable power of attorney can be used um, for healthcare decisions and financial decisions, but most of the time the durable power of attorney document is something that's more targeted towards financial decisions.
0: So, bottom line is we're talking about a living will. we're talking about having designated a health care proxy. Are those sufficient though, in terms of i mean i I have been in, at one point told that you need to have in place first of all, these vary from state to state, but the things that you're determining right or discussing right now are specific to New York state at this point, yes, with our current law. What more could you what more could you use, or what more would you need, for example? What is a DNR? Do not resuscitate. And where does that fit in as an order?
3: Well, when you want to make your uh, documents, some of your wishes for end-of-life care, you can fill out a form uh, called a MOLST form here in New York State, which is basically a uh, directive that travels with you. You can um, reiterate who your health care proxy is in that there's some um, selections for uh, what conditions you'd like to be resuscitated under. DNRS do not resuscitate. That's uh, part of it. That's part of it, and and so that that's something that if your heart stops, do you want people do you want it to be coded? Do you want to have uh, you know medications given and chest compressions given and that sort of thing? There's also a section uh, for do not intubate, in which that, uh, explores the situations under which you'd like to be on a respirator or not, and it's so it's a it's a way of of kind of pulling together what your thoughts are, in, ad- in addition to naming your health care proxy, who will be able to um, facilitate you having your wishes respected. But
0: it's also put in the form of a doctor's order so it can be executed, it's, it's without cl- question.
3: It, it, yes, doctors will sign off on the on the MOLS form as being a valid uh, representation of your wishes.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with bioethicist Dr. Robert Olick and Dr. Thomas Curran. We're talking about the importance of advanced directives and end-of-life planning so what I think people worry about quite often even if they have the forethought or the courage to have these conversations and put these things in place I think the whole concept of the legality of it do you need for example to have these forms notarized do you need a lawyer to help you write these forms uh, you, you were clear about the healthcare proxy idea that's pretty straightforward but the living will, for, a simple, for example, or the MOST form. And then can these be changed? And when can you change them? And if you were in the hospital, for example, and had these papers in place in your medical record, or the MOST form went with you from perhaps, let's say, a um, assisted living facility to the hospital, and then you perhaps were still in, in clear enough mind to say, you know what? I've changed my mind. Can you and how do you make that kind of verbal change to these types of things?
3: Well, just I talked about that just so the living will is a if this then that type document. And so it's very specific. And that is limits it in many instances. Whereas the healthcare proxy is more of an on the fly take all circumstances into consideration and make a decision that you think the uh, the person would want to have made for them. And so it just speaks, and you don't need a lawyer for a, to designate a health proxy, and you don't need a lawyer to fill out a MOLS form. And I think there's this misperception that lawyers need to be involved in order to make these documents, and it serves as a barrier to getting them. And you do not need a lawyer for those. Living will, sometimes people involve lawyers just because it has a lot of, well, they do, but it's not necessary. Uh, so
0: if you were to choose, I guess, or Dr. Olik, did you have some other comment about that? You're a lawyer's. Well, I I would
3: add that the law with
5: respect to the sort of formalities of making it a legally valid document is pretty uniform across the country. Um, Do you need to be notarized? You do not need a notary. Um, Two signatures is usually typical, uh, as well as the signature, you know, two witnesses and the signature of the patient. Um, And um, uh, that makes the document valid. And if you, for example... Uh, another sort of uniform rule is if you live in one state, you're in the hospital in another. Um, your document is to be respected wherever you are,
0: so th- and they can be changed
5: and they can be changed absolutely. So
0: it's the one that's dated most currently that's the one that's most that's in that's enforced, so to speak. But if you were to be, you know need to change something verbally at the last minute, let's say, could you do so?
5: right. So you'd have a few issues that might come up there. So first of all, that's correct, that the general rule would be that the most recent document would take precedence and would invalidate the earlier document. Um, That may not be the case if one document is a healthcare proxy and the other document is a living will and they're written at different times. Right, I I meant the same. Then you have to figure that out um, in consultation with the family, for example. Um, You can change the document at any time as long as you're competent to do so. Um, And also, as was mentioned earlier, uh, if you have capacity to make your own decisions, if you're competent, um, then your wishes count, and the health care proxy or the living will do not apply until you
3: lose that ability.
0: Now, there's some new law in New York State, a relatively new law the last four or five years. Tell us about that, Dr. Kern.
3: So the the Family Health Care Decisions Act was passed back in 2010, and that makes uh, provisions for alternative uh, surrogate decision makers to be brought in if the patient has lost decision decisional capacity and has not previously appointed a healthcare proxy. Prior to that it was a mess to trying to figure out who could make decisions, medical decisions for, for these people who had not did not have a healthcare proxy form. And so now there's a pecking order that's been developed where you go through with your um, various uh, relationships with you. So um, your spouse would have first uh, uh, be first in line to make decisions for you, then an adult child, then a parent. By the way, I don't get that one because I want my mom and dad to make decisions for me, not my adult children, but that's another thing. <laughs> you um, mean that, the order that was yes, determined. Yes, exactly. My kids, are you kidding me? Uh, sibling. <laughs> and course. then uh, lastly is an other friend or relative. And, and I've had a case where someone who had not appointed a health care proxy, their closest relation they could find to them was someone who was in a book club with them. Mm-hmm. But they knew them very, very well, right. and this person was able to make medical decisions, a book club associate. Well, they
0: were a good friend, They were a wonderful
3: friend. So so this this legislation has really um, helped people have their uh, wishes be respected, even without the appropriate documentation.
0: So the bottom line here, I mean, you've almost alluded to the fact that living will can almost get in your way. I guess what would you say are the most crucial, just to kind of sum it all up, What are the key points you want to make? Also, I guess I want to make this point. This is good. This is something everyone should have, not just people who are in their last decade of life or the last year of life. If you're older than 18. Everyone, because people can have auto accidents. Any number of things could happen, and you really want to have something in place so that you can be cared for in the way you think you'd like to be. So what's the bottom line?
5: Well, to exactly that point, there are several important reasons to do this. One is to ensure that your wishes are going to count and control decisions that are made for you uh, when you're unable to make decisions for yourself. A second is to um, give assurance and guidance uh, to family members and to physicians about what your wishes would be, and in doing so to relieve some of the burdens on family members that uh would occur if they didn't know what your wishes are because their obligation, whether they're designated as proxy or whether they're acting as family members without that piece of paper, is going to be to try to make the decision that you would choose for yourself so if able to do so. The most
0: essential component is the healthcare proxy and the most, perhaps? Uh, in
5: well, I would say the healthcare proxy and talking to your family and your doctor.
0: So you don't need the legal you don't need the living will.
3: No, no, healthcare healthcare proxy is absolutely the way to go in New York State.
0: Very good. Thank you so much. Difficult conversations to have, but very, very crucial. My guests have been Dr. Robert Olick, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Humanities and the Chair of the Ethics Committee at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Thomas Curran. He's Assistant Professor of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate University and the Chair of the Ethics Consulting Service for Upstate and the Krause Hospital in Syracuse. Once again, thanks so much.
3: Thank you. A
0: pleasure. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. Now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
6: Thank you, Linda. Poet Elizabeth Brule Farrell believes in the healing power of words. She gives us a powerful glimpse into life with a disability in her short poem, The First Time Ordering a Wheelchair. We always took connecting flights cheaper and a challenge to run as fast as we could to get to the gate on time with exhilarated laughter. Though my appearance does not yet give me away, to order a wheelchair seems a betrayal to my belief that I could just imagine becoming well and it would happen. Is it giving up when I press the button saying, yes, I need a wheelchair? Or is it grace in accepting a new view of who I am, letting go of the old image, and being glad that a thing with wheels can go faster than I can, allowing someone else to push me along, saying thank you with a smile and meaning it.
0: for joining us for HealthLink on Air brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we check out the new silver bullet for treating cholesterol. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on our website. That's HealthLink on Air. That's all one word.org. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, and also check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.